Behold, I am doing a new thing. Isaiah 43:19. I am God is doing a new thing. Speaking to his people Israel through the prophet Isaiah and referring to the conclusion of their time in exile and captivity, God said, Behold, I am doing a new thing. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to raise up the valleys and lower the mountains, flatten it all out, and all those windy roads, I'm going to make straight a, a pathway in the wilderness for my people who have been in exile and under punishment that they deserve, but I'm bringing them home. I'm doing a new thing. He specializes in new things, hey, doesn't he? God specializes in new things, creation from nothing, fertility from infertility. Think about the Bible all over the place hope from hopelessness new creation from brokenness new opportunities from failure god is always doing new things of course one could be forgiven for wondering why then is the church often associated with boring things broken down things asbestos laden things dilapidated things, outdated things, powerless things, mundane things, religious things, the same old things, lifeless things. It's a travesty if that's the case, that church is associated with that which is anything but new when it's God, our God, who is a God of new things and he's still doing new things and I guess I hope tonight we would be encouraged as a church that we should be expecting him to do new things amongst us and in our community and in our world. And that's an exciting place to be. I want to say it might sound a bit cocky or uh, presumptuous, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that God is either doing something new in your life or he's about to. Because that's what he does. As individuals, as families... Life never stays the same for long, and if it has, it's time to find something fresh from the Lord. Think about that. Is it fair to say that? I think it is. If it's same old, same old, <clears throat> God has something fresh for you, and you break through in your character. You haven't got it all sorted. I haven't. There's some tweaking of the character. There's a new understanding from his word to go, poor, wow, I didn't understand that. That's changing my life. It's a revelation. There's a new opportunity in his team for you. There's something. I wonder what it is. What's God, what is, what's his new thing for you right now? Scripture says in a general way, but I think we can grab hold of it and special, um, specify it to our, our lives. Behold, he is doing a new thing. So we begin this um, eight-week study in the book of Nehemiah and uh, that was a good low act on Sarah, whoever passed her that ball. <laughs> lots, <laughs> lots of odd words and uh, sentences that you find in the Old Testament. So you did well. Um, but we're looking in Nehemiah and it's a book of new things. If, if you read the book of Nehemiah, and I would really encourage you to, we're in there for two months, Lord willing. It's a book of vision and courage and passion and tenacity. It's a book about rebuilding and revitalization. So it's hard to get through a building project without looking at Nehemiah. Is that fair to say? Like, you've got to look at it at some point. We haven't in the last three years. So, Nehemiah begins, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, 
in the month of Kislev, which is autumn in the northern, um, uh, northern um, hemisphere, November. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about my beloved Jerusalem's hometown. <clears throat> now, first of all, that has a whole stack of presumed knowledge for us as hearers, doesn't it? So let's do a full-on recap and uh, should have a little bunch of dot points here. Um, let me give you a bit of a recap of what those verses, are, where they're coming from, what the context is. Um, so Israel have left Egypt. God has rescued them and taken them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, has given them the law, the commandments, um, told them how they should live if they're going to be God's people and he's given them um, military victory over many nations to secure the land that he had promised them. And then they've split the land up among the 12 tribes and they asked for a human king. God didn't want to give them a human king, but they said, we want a king like everyone else. So they gave them, God gave them a king, Saul first and then David and Solomon. And Solomon built a temple in the city that had become the city of God, Jerusalem. And this is Israel's capital. And Solomon built a temple in 986 BC. 986 BC. And I mentioned this this morning, and I'm honestly not trying to be patronising, but suddenly I'm going to start spitting out um, all these dates. And it sounds like mathematics, and Sunday night no one wants to do maths. So most of you are going, oh, I'm, I'm vegging out now. I'm not in this. Some of you are going, maths? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, imagine I'm... 440 BC, I'm when Nehemiah's happening. So if you head that way on the timeline, you've got bigger BC numbers, right? And it's coming this way towards me, 440, and that's heading that way towards Jesus and then on towards us in 2018. That's too too hard a question. (laughs) Does anyone know the answer to that? There is a year zero? Awesome. The mathematicians have solved the problem for us. I would have thought so. Um, so 986 BC, the first glorious temple is built by Solomon. 722 BC, how many years later is that? The Grimes should know immediately, especially Amy. 136 years later. So a while later, the ten tribes who are in the north, by now there's ten tribes in the north, two in the south, Ten tribes in the north are taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. And the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, are in Jerusalem and they're singing songs saying they'll never be defeated. And then so all the way through the 600 BC, so the 7th century BC, there are prophets warning of a final judgment that will come on Jerusalem and the people of God. And it finally happens. 605 BC, that's a really important date, 605 BC, Babylon comes and takes the first bunch of exiles out of Jerusalem, 605 BC, and amongst that crowd are Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they're all taken off 1600 kilometers east to the city of Babylon. And then 586 BC, So, a few more years on from 605, 
the Babylonians destroy the temple. The unthinkable happens. Why is it unthinkable that the temple could ever be destroyed? Because the presence of God's there, the Spirit of God is there. But Ezekiel said, he put up a board, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed from the temple. It's going. And there was this sort of amazing departure of God. Now, without God in the temple, without God in your life, you're really vulnerable. And so they were, Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar came, and they destroyed the temple. They took everyone off to Babylon. They left only the sick, very sick, and the poorest of the poor. All, all, poorest of the poor. all of this had been prophesied beforehand by Jeremiah, who as a teenager began his call as a prophet in 627 B.C. 627 B.C., he said in Jeremiah 25, verse 9, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. So as a teenager, had a bit of a hard calling, Jeremiah. That's the sort of stuff he had to say. But don't ever think that this just happened. Jeremiah, this young prophet, this firebrand who's taking on all the leaders he says you'd never know this guys but god is raising up nebuchadnezzar 1600 kilometers away a pagan king and he's going to come and bring judgment they're like what as if that's going to happen but it does and then later in chapter 25 verse 12 of jeremiah it says but when the 70 years are fulfilled i will punish the king of babylon and his nation the land of the Babylonians for their guilt declares the Lord and will make it desolate forever. So there's a judgment coming on Babylon for inflicting judgment on Israel. But there's a prophecy there to say to the people of Israel how long their captivity is going to be. It'll be 70 years. So you go 605 plus 70. They should be coming out of this punishment about 535, 536 bc so that's actually what happens just like it was prophesied um now has anyone looked up bible project a few people look at that bible project and um the guy there he says you know you should never preach just nehemiah study you've got to be ezra nehemiah everyone see that so we're breaking the rules so ezra the book of ezra tells about how 50 years after the first deportation. When did the first deportation happen? 605 BC. Come on, do it. 605 BC, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they were taken off, remember? So 605 plus 50 years takes you back to about 555. Cyrus king of persia has already kicked babylon's backside and cyrus king of persia is in charge of all these israelites and he actually allows a guy called zerubbabel to take fifty thousand israelites back to jerusalem and say have a crack at rebuilding the temple so they do they go back and they rebuild the temple and it's finished 536 bc 70 years on so Seventy years after the first deportation, they've built the second temple. And you can read about the, the elders who were there for the first temple. They're weeping. The young people are all celebrating. They're going, oh, check out the tin shed. It's awesome. That's a great temple. But the older ones, not only do they miss the glory architecturally of the old temple, what do you, what do you think they miss? 
like pillars of fire and smoke and like, whoa, God is with us. There's none of that. It's sort of religion now. It's, uh, there's not a whole lot of the presence of God. Do you remember when um, Moses is about to go and God goes, I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says what? If you don't come with us, how will anyone know where we belong to you? So the presence of God, powerfully present with the people, is always the marker of the people of God knowing the true God. So then a bit after that, Ezra the priest comes back to Jerusalem and he reinstitutes um, religious practice. This is all leading up to 440 BC. 440 BC, how many years after the rebuilding of the temple finished? About a hundred years. How many years after the destruction of the first temple? About 150 years. It's a long time, isn't it? It's a long time. So when you hear Nehemiah talking about the walls have been broken down, the temple got rebuilt a hundred years back. 50,000 people had gone. How many people would that have grown into? Heaps, heaps. But they've intermarried. They haven't listened to the law, the teachings of Yahweh for God's people. And the place is a mess and the city is just left in ruins and, and the walls aren't put back up. And it's, it's like when you find a church and no one cares less about it. Like it's just, no one really cares. So Nehemiah's brother comes and tells him about home, what's been happening, how things are going at home. Um, so it's all pretty depressing for Nehemiah. But I want to shift um, from there for a second. And think about really what's been happening. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, I think I've got it there, says this, Don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. So Israel had turned their hearts away from God for many, many years. Did you notice how many years the first temple was up for? Hey? Pretty cool, isn't it? 400. There's something about 40, 400, 70, 400 years in slavery, 400 years of a glorious temple. Um, but they did think they could mock God. They, they, didn't, they, they, they thought they could treat God's words as not very weighty. That you, yeah, God, you might hate all this stuff, but we don't really care. Your words don't have much meaning for us. And so he's saying through prophets for years and years and years, he's saying, I really mean it. Um, bad stuff's going to happen to you. And, and for us, we can be here in 2018 and say, oh, yeah, apparently the temple fell and Jerusalem fell. Does anyone remember the, the prophecy about what would happen before it fell? It said, you will be starved by the siege of Jerusalem so badly that you will eat your children. And they did. You will fight off people for the afterbirth and the child to eat. That's not just because you're hungry. There's a warping of the mind. There's something that in the heart has gone really bad. Paul says in Galatians, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. And, and the weird thing is, God brings them back from captivity, gives them the city back. But even then, they have Ezra come, teach them the law, and, and still they don't care. They don't care. They intermarry with the, with the pagans and... Um, God wants to do a new thing. So I talked about brokenness at the start. 
God's new thing in your life will definitely be you know, when you leave school. And you have this new thing, like you, you know, you're stepping out, it takes courage and um, challenge, and, and maybe you get married. That's a new thing. Like there's just these life stage aspects. And maybe you don't get married, you get a new job, or you buy a house, or you move places. There's so much can happen in life that throws curveballs at us, and we go, wow, that's a new thing. I guess I'm talking more about God's new thing is often a rescue plan. Like we, we have done the Galatians 6-7 thing. I just wonder if I could cut that corner. I know I'm not meant to, but I'm just thinking if I could mock you, I could just mock you and sort of act as though it doesn't matter. I'm just going to give in to desire here and there, and I'm not going to obey you, Lord. And I think it's a picture of what happens when I look at Nehemiah and Israel. I think when I do that myself, because I'm not perfect, it's like the walls come down. And the things that used, the fiery arrows that used to get fended off, they don't get fended off anymore. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like you give in to the bad stuff and the walls start crumbling down. And that which used to protect you, it's even like your conscience. Your conscience gets seared and you're like, I used to have a conscience that stopped me going to that place. So my heart, my brain, the habits, everything starts taking me to a place that's not so great. And these habits become addictions and they become chains around our legs. God's word gives us moral boundaries. God's word gives us walls. She says, you know, it's good to leave that wall up. But we live in a world now that just sort of wants to say, walls are bad. Don't care what they are. They're just bad. Get rid of them. But we know that sometimes you, in our pursuit of freedom, we get enslaved. In our pursuit of knocking the wall down, we get to places where we desperately wish we had the wall back again. I came across this quote this week, actually, and I thought it was a cracker. Malcolm Muggeridge um, is one of the great writers of the 20th century. And he said this about um, basically Western institutions of education, but it's, it's in the 70s. And he said this, I think I've got it there, right? So have a look. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his own affluence. Has that happened? So affluent, but we're just bored. His own vulnerability out of his own strength. His own impotence out of his own erotomania. Himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling down and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, laboured with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer until at last having educated himself into imbecility, and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he kneeled over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. Okay, maybe you're an idealist and you think everything new is good. I don't think it is. I grew up in the 70s and I'm still going, and I think he was right. He said, we're going to get so smart that one day we'll have a professor in some uni to say that anything you come up with is okay morally. We're there. <clears throat> we're there. So let me ask you in, in your life, where have you let the walls of God's guidance come crumbling down? And where do you know that you know that you know 
Something new has to happen. You've got to fix it. And I want to encourage you that uh, you have a loving father who wants you to come home, a loving father who wants to do a new thing in your life, in my life. He certainly wanted to do a new thing in Israel <coughs> and he chose to, to move the heart of Nehemiah to do something about it. So let me read it from verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, back in Jerusalem, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, okay, this is Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart was moved. He is moved. But it'll take courage for his will to be moved also. Because our emotions, our heart can get moved by current events. Something happens in life and you're like, whoa, you might even get some tears. Like you, you can feel something for stuff. But it's when the will is affected that we'll do something about it. Current events move the heart. Spiritual events move the will. By that I mean... Current offence will affect us, but what will affect lasting, sacrificial, potentially sacrificial change is when you look at something happening in life and you go, there's a bigger reality about God and his glory and God isn't getting what he deserves right there and I'm going to do something about it because I care about that more than that. Like, there's a bigger story. <clears throat> Current events move the heart, spiritual events move the will and... Spiritual events are loaded with kingdom reality. They tap into what we believe is worth living and dying for. When Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem, a hundred years after the temple had been rebuilt, is wallowing in mediocrity, he feels wholly discontent, doesn't he? The Bill Hybels line. Like he, he feels wholly discontent. He's like, you know what? God's worth more than that. In our language, Jesus is worth it, Right? Jesus is worth more than mediocrity. So what does he do? <clears throat> Nehemiah prays and fasts. He runs to God's presence. He grabs hold of the throne and he asks for help. He says this in verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servants praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. How often did he pray? Day and night, like he got a hold of this thing. He's like, well, I haven't, it's not just an emotional sort of fling. I'm, I'm moved. This is an angst that is in my heart. I got a burden. <clears throat> and he's like, I can't actually just blame my ancestors. I'm a sinner. So he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. You know, you want breakthrough in your life? I want breakthrough, I want new things. It's going to take courage. Amen? Courage is doing hard things. That's what courage is. When you confess your sins to someone and you own up that you've wronged them, that you've wronged God, it takes courage. He's courageous. Nehemiah, the beginning of a revolutionary who goes back and sees massive change, starts with confession of sin, honesty, ownership, bringing it out into the light. 
Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Why would Nehemiah say to God, remember what you said? What do you think? I'm sort of thinking God's got an awesome memory. Anyone agree? Why on earth would we say, God, I remember you said. It is always, every time to remind the person praying. It just happens to sound like you're saying, God, remember. He's saying, God, I remember when you said, and I'm holding on to that by my fingertips. I'm holding on to the fact that you said, if you're unfaithful, yep, you'll scatter us among the nations. But if we return and obey you, then even if we're exiled people at the farthest horizon, I'll give, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, your people, who you redeemed by your great strength, your mighty hand. God, it's your people. You did it. You brought us out of Egypt. You promised us to come back after 70 years. And then he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Let your ear be attentive. When you pray for a new beginning in your life, have you ever had the sense that his ear is not attentive? Because that's what the evil one does. Because you, you, you've, you've made silly decisions. You've done the, like, I, I think I'm going to mock you, God. And you get to the point, like the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter, where you're with the pigs, you're in that place, chained up, doing the stuff that's no good, the walls are broken down, and you feel like saying, God, help. And like the evil one is there saying, who do you think you are? Do you think he's going to listen? And some of us have already believed that. Like, oh, why would I ask for forgiveness? I, I don't know. He's not listening. I want to encourage you in Jesus' name. He is. Amen. He is. He is. He is. He is. He is the, the one who is the, the father, the generous father who chases down lost people. He is the one who, I think it was last week we talked about the sheep. He leaves the 99 to find the one, to find us. And he, he celebrates his ear is attentive to our cry. It is. And we're encouraged to, to yell out and say, I need your help, Lord. And his prayer is, I need favor, God. I need favor. And it finishes here with, um, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So he's actually... Um, coming to the end of his time of seeking God. And he's going to go to the king and ask him for a favour. And he's asking God to give the favour to him through the king. Um, it's taken four months. You don't pick that up until you read a bit further on. He's praying for four months. Did his will get moved? It wasn't just an emotional thing. It was like fasting, praying seeking, calling out on God, saying, God, what do I do with this angst, this burden? I'm not letting it go. He is praying. And yet he's coming up against the Persian Empire, which is just enormous. It's dominant. It's overwhelmingly powerful. But his courage comes from his confidence in who he's praying to. Remember, he said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Took courage, didn't it? To confess his sins. Took courage for him to go beyond feeling and to dig in 
for four months. He wanted to revitalize Jerusalem, a rebuilt wall, a re-established spiritual kingdom under God. That can happen in your lives, guys. Um, I don't know what it is that's happening, but I have no doubt in 35 of us here, we've got people who are like, I so need a new thing. I just need a new thing. In a really practical way, and I think it's really inspiring, I want to show you a video in a minute because it tells you something that's happening here in our church. Um, if you didn't know, well over a decade ago, um, people noticed that Hornsby Baptist Church's building was broken down. The walls were cracking and the roof was sagging and the damp was rising. And they prayed for a new thing from the Lord. And they had a few false starts. Cost about 500,000 bucks. False starts. And then over this long period of time, a few people in particular got raised up with particular skill sets. And the church on the whole had guts to go after something new. And it's only bricks and mortar, but it means a lot. And uh, Rob Painter is... A teacher, some of us know him, he's a teacher up at Barker. And so for 12 months, I guess, 18 months, he's been taking a photo most weeks. And he loves Bob Dylan. So if you're willing to take a photo every week, you get to choose the song that goes with the <laughs> montage. So check this out, check this out. Yeah, let's clap. That's inspiring, hey? So there's really cool things happening. God is doing something new in our midst. and um, But it's got to be so much more than bricks and mortar. It's got to be people. It's got to be lives changed. It's got to be um, testimonies of transformation, of addictions broken, of relationships restored, of stinginess turned into generosity, of lust gone mad to purity. Um, brokenness to wholeness. Like, that's what it's about, isn't it? Like, that's what we want. Real people with changed stories. God loves to do new things. So I don't know if it, it just right at the moment you can relate to the walls being broken down or you just feel like saying, God, I, I don't even know what you have to do in my life, but I, I need something new. Like you, God, I don't want to be in this place forever. So keep talking to him about it. I think we could pray. It would be good to pray with each other. Um, not so much um, really personal stuff. I don't mean to put that on us. Um, but maybe we could break up in a couple of groups, like pretty big groups, maybe three groups. And uh, just and pray for however you feel led for five minutes before we come to communion. Now we're just praying and thanking God that he wants to do new, new things and committing this this church to him and the people in the church and the people not in the church like we want we want god to do a new thing here hey like in the community um in the units there's a lot of units around right <laughs> we see god do something special amongst the units around hornsby and the surrounding suburbs um there's a few of us would love to pray for you if if you want to come forward while this is going on so i'm hoping there's a buzz of noise and if, if, if you want to have prayer for you, you say, I, I need a new thing. I'd like just someone to lay hands on me and pray. 
That's going to happen at the front, just for five minutes. So if that's you, just come forward. You don't even have to give up much detail. So I, I need prayer for a new thing. So can we do that? Just break up into groups, pray. If you'd like prayer, come forward. Richard's here, Rachel, myself. Um, let's do that, and then we're going to come around communion.